Welcome to our continuing 2021 educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our comp complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Ileana L. Peters, shareholder at Polsonelli. Ileana believes good data privacy and security is fundamental to ensuring patients' trust in the healthcare system and to and to helping healthcare clients succeed in an ever-changing landscape of threats to data security. She is recognized by the healthcare industry as a preeminent thinker and speaker on data privacy and security, particularly with regard to HIPAA, the High Tech Act, the 21st Century Cures Act, and the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination non Act, or GINA, the Privacy Act, and emerging, emerging cyber threats to health data. For over a decade, she both developed health information privacy and security policy, including on emerging technologies and cyber threats for the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, and enforced HIPAA regulations through spearheading multi-million dollar settlement agreements and civil money penalties pursuant to HIPAA. Ileana also focused on training individuals in both the private and public sector, including compliance investigators, auditors and state attorneys general on HIPAA regulations and policy and on good data privacy and security practices. As a CISSP, Ileana works hard to bridge the gap between legal requirements for the security of health data and security industry best practices so that clients can better understand data security issues and jargon. She is excited to bring her, her extensive experience drafting, implementing, and enforcing health privacy and security regulations and guidance to a practice that focuses on helping clients develop and implement good data privacy and security practices to avoid risk and helping clients prepare for and recover from emerging cyber threats. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Today, our team is turning the spotlight on Super Ninja Jean Bassford, Human Resources Generalist at Maine Nephrology Associates PA. Jean says, I love working for a medical practice with such a caring staff, both clinical and non-clinical. We all work hard to make things run as smoothly as possible so our providers can get can give the best possible care to our patients. Congratulations, Jean. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. 
there is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the broadcast. See their website for details. So Ileana, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. I really appreciate the opportunity and I am excited to talk with everyone about uh, recent attacks on data security. Um, so our presentation today um, is about just that, about you know, the, the stuff that keeps us up at night, the stuff of nightmares, and really you know, what I work very often with clients on these days, and that is cyber threats and different types of uh, attacks that we've experienced um, with regard to data security. So um, the presentation today is going to focus on that. Obviously, there are a lot of other issues and compliance requirements that play into these conversations. We could talk for hours on these subjects. So if there is anything that uh, you, know, you have questions on afterwards or during the presentation, please feel free to ask them and we can regroup offline. My contact information is in here as well. So if you prefer to send me an email, that's absolutely fine too. Um, because I know this is a lot of really important information and a lot of folks do have questions about not only the content that's here, but uh, again, really good questions on um, sort of tangential issues related to compliance or um, other questions that come up during the presentation. So again, feel free to get in touch. Um, moving on to our first slide. So I really wanted to give you kind of a sense of why we're having this conversation in the first place. And I think it's really important to orient ourselves to what this issue looks like. Um, this particular slide is a slide that HHS Office for Civil Rights produces uh, on a regular basis for their public presentations. The last public presentation where this slide was available was in um, April of, or excuse me, in March of this past year. And you'll see on the slide that the numbers on the right-hand pie go through February. So, um, so this slide is a little bit old, but um, we thought it was really helpful, and I'll talk through why that is in just a minute, for, for you to get a sense of what we're looking at. So again, these slides are, are slides that are produced by the Department of Health and Human Services for their public presentations. And you know, I think they're really helpful because they illustrate in these pies, the types of reports that OCR is receiving from HIPAA-covered entities and business associates of breaches that affect 500 or more individuals. So as you see at the top of the slide, it says 500 plus breaches by type of breach. Again, that means that what we're looking at here is a report that is made to HHS as a requirement of HIPAA, of the HIPAA breach notification rule, by a HIPAA-covered entity or one of their business associates regarding a type of breach that they experienced that affected 500 or more individuals. Uh, so just to orient us to what this data is, this is not all uh, breaches by all entities in all industries. This is really limited to breaches that are reported to HHS by HIPAA-covered entities and business associates and those that are large breaches, that is, they affect 500 or more individuals. So if you look at the pie on the left-hand side of this slide, you'll see that that's over really the life of the breach notification program. 
So if you recall, the breach notification rule was implemented after the High Tech Act was passed, and um, breach reports started coming into HHS around September 23rd of 2009. And so this left-hand side uh, pie is really about the life of the program and what the, the breach notification program has looked like for many years and the comprehensive data from that program. So as you can see, over that program, over the life of that program, theft and loss was a big issue. That's the blue piece of the pie, uh, the large blue piece of the pie, and the orange piece of the pie. And so, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of entities experience theft and loss. And when we talk about theft and loss in this context, we're talking about stolen devices or lost devices, and that is so not theft of data. That's a hacking or IT incident. That's the yellow piece of the pie. When we talk about theft and loss, we're talking about devices or even paper. So theft or loss does include here paper. So what we're talking about here over time, as you'll see from the right-hand side of the pie, is really less and less theft and loss issues because entities are doing a much better job of encrypting their data. So if you have a device that is encrypted, that is lost or stolen, you do not have to report that breach to HHS. So over time, entities have done a much better job of encrypting devices that may be lost or stolen. And so we're seeing a lot fewer reports involving theft and loss. What we are seeing more and more, as you see, the difference between the two pies is an increase in that yellow piece of that pie. That's the hacking and IT incidents. Those are the incidents that involve unauthorized third parties, threat actors, taking steps to get into a HIPAA-covered entity or a business associate's enterprise systems or devices and potentially interacting with their data, accessing the data, acquiring the data, using the data in a way that's not permitted under HIPAA. And so we see a, a significant increase in that over time. That is the vast majority of breach reports that we're seeing these days involve hacking and IT incidents. And so that's what we're talking about today. I did just want to highlight the gray piece of the pie for you as well, and that is unauthorized access or disclosure. So that really is uh, a similar related issue. That's electronic data, so usually not paper data when we're talking about unauthorized access and disclosure. Usually we're talking about electronic PHI. Um, but what we're talking about there is uh, cases in which um, electronic data may be accessed inappropriately by insiders. So you have workforce members that are accessing data that they shouldn't. Um, so that's not an external third party or an external threat actor that's accessing your data. That's an internal party that may have access rights that may work for you that's inappropriately accessing your data. Or it's when you make a mistake and send an email to a wrong party, um, and that's an unauthorized disclosure. Or you send, um, you know, uh, uh, web, uh, you have a webinar of some kind and you, you share information that shouldn't be shared. Or you modify your systems and you um, change settings and the information ends up on the internet when it shouldn't. So that's not really what we're going to focus on today, that gray piece of the pie. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but really what we're going to talk about mostly is the yellow piece of the pie. And I hope that you can see why from the shift from the left-hand side of the screen 
to the right-hand side of your screen is that really is the major threat that we're seeing these days for entities of all types, not just HIPAA-covered entities and business associates. Um, our firm and our team um, has a, a very large group, uh, roughly 30 or so attorneys that work with different entities of all types. Uh, obviously, as Catherine mentioned, I'm focused primarily in the healthcare sector, although I work with other types of entities too, including education entities and other entities. But really, you know, this, while these pies aren't uh, reported from data that is industry-wide or, uh, or all industries in the economy, they really do reflect what we're seeing for entities of all types. So um, I think it's a really good um, indicator of, of, again, the threats that are out there and why we're having this conversation today. So the threat landscape, as I said, has really changed over the time over the past few years, and the and the vast majority of data has been created in the past couple of years. Um, so you know, really, what we're seeing is an explosion in data creation for many different reasons, um, including you know moves to um, electronic health records, all different types of electronic devices being used in the healthcare industry. Um, you know, cloud is very new, but um, it is still very important for um, our industry and uh, really, you know, is being implemented very quickly. Um, and sometimes, in some cases, is being implemented without uh, legal review or IT review, and that can create risks. So there are some very secure cloud vendors, and uh, we obviously recommend that you do a really good job in terms of looking at your cloud vendors so you can make sure that you have a, a good relationship with them and, and really use cloud vendors that are implementing good data security. Um, traditional IT infrastructure resources um, are changing very quickly, and so you know, a lot of companies don't really have a good idea of all of the vendors they're using, all of the data that they have, all of the uh, supply chain issues that they may be experiencing. So it's really, you know, um, when we're talking about the threat landscape, what we're talking about is a lack of really good data governance. So this is an issue that goes well beyond legal requirements, both state and federal, and we'll talk about those requirements here shortly. But this is really an, an issue that is about data governance from a much more general perspective. And that really is about entities having a very good idea of what data they hold. Again, that, that first bullet, what data do you hold for what people, what data subjects? What is the substance of that data? So for example, does it include certain types of identifiers? Is it proprietary data? Is it trade secret data? What kind of data do you hold? What do your um, applications look like that hold that data? Again, are they cloud applications? Are they on-premises applications? What kind of applications do you have? And what are the security controls that are on those applications? So really, how have you implemented those applications such that you've reduced the risk to the data in those applications so that you can avoid these types of malware attacks? and threat actor activities that we're talking about today. Um, for example, NotPetya was a type of attack um, that was very new at the time, and it cost several different businesses a lot of money in terms of remediation from those types of attacks. And so that's really what we're talking about today is these types of attacks that impact all of this data that we have in these new 
um, and interesting and important applications. Um, and, and again, at the end of the day, it's really about understanding what data do you have, what is the uh, substance of that data with regard to the people that it may be about or the subjects that it may be about, um, how do you protect that data in all of the different types of applications that, that you use, particularly in cloud applications? And are you prepared for these types of threats that we're encountering, all of these new threats, uh, malware, ransomware, business email compromise? Again, we'll talk about those all during this presentation. So here's another um, HHS breach slide. Um, again, similar situation with the left-hand side of the pie and then the right-hand side of the pie. Um, again, here we're talking about where these breaches occur. And so following on our, our, our discussion here is really when we're looking at our threat landscape, what does it look like in terms of where the data lives, as we were just talking about, really understanding what data you have and where it is, what kind of applications it lives in so that you can protect it. Um, and so when we're talking about here, you can see here on the left-hand side, this is the historical data, the data over the life of the program, all of the data over the life of the program. And again, you'll see here, you know, it's a, it's a pre pretty good variety of data. You've got um, email servers, you've got network or, or email instances, you have network servers, you have laptops, desktop computers, again, portable devices, those devices that can be lost or stolen, used to make up a good at least quarter of this pie, paper records obviously made up uh, a large percentage of this pie, etc. But if you're moving to what we're seeing more, more recently, and that is on the right-hand side, you see that this really is moving to a situation where it is mostly electronic data in emails and on network servers. That we're seeing, again, as you saw in the previous slides, fewer lost or stolen devices, that is the laptops, desktop computers, portable devices don't even really show up, although there's a tiny little piece of that. Um, you know, paper record breaches are much fewer, which is fantastic. But really what we're dealing with these days is electronic data in these places where attackers perpetrate threats. And so that's really what we want to talk about here is the types of threats we're seeing are those threats that um, create risks to your email and to data that are, that are on your network servers. So for example, business email compromise is one of the most um, prevalent um, threats that we're seeing to entities. And what that means um, in day-to-day -day parlance is that someone gets into your email account, you, your, one of your workforce members, they get into an email account and they have access to all of the data in that email account. So as you can imagine, if you think about what's in your own email account today, just imagine if a threat actor got access to what's in your email account. Um, depending on the role you have in your organization, that could be data for patients, it could be data for employees, it could be your own personal data, um, it could be proprietary and trade secret data. So our email accounts these days function basically as our filing cabinet for many people and really are, are, are very, very robust sources of data for threat actors, and they know that. So they're going to send you a phishing email and ask you to click on a link 
and enter your credentials and then they will get into your email box and either take data with them, forward emails, download your email box, or they will interact with the data in the email account, send spam emails to everyone in your contact list, your colleagues, your customers, expand that attack in a really um, frightening way, frankly, um, and have access to a lot of other people's data. So that's what a business email compromise looks like, and that's why it is such a scary event for different types of entities. Again, that type of threat is happening all over our economy, not just in the healthcare sector. Similarly, when we're talking about threats to data on network servers, we're talking about similar types of attacks, usually precipitated by phishing, but also we have threat actors that can find sort of a hole in your security. You have a device maybe that's not secured, maybe um, uh, an uh, internet connected device. We have you know, all of these internet of things these days where we have all of these different devices that are connected. Maybe you have a, a connected device that has a default password on it that can be easily guessed. And a, a threat actor finds that on your network and um, walks right in using a default password and then has access to the data on your servers, the data on connected devices, um, can escalate their privileges and start making changes to your systems. Uh, you know, implementing different types of applications to send data out of your network. So these are all very sort of very scary events, um, and that's why we're having this conversation today. So really, again, back to the last slide, understanding where your data is, that is, what data do you have for what individuals about what subjects? And then where does that data live? Is it in your email? Is it on different network servers? Um, and then how is it protected? Do you have good controls in all of those locations so you can uh, appropriately avoid these types of attacks? So um, this slide again is a slide from HHS and I just wanted to illustrate for you over time, you know, for a certain time period what this looks like. It's a nice five-year round number period. Um, so you can see over time that unfortunately these types of breaches are not decreasing. They are only increasing and increasing fairly significantly over time. So um, we don't think we'll see a decrease in these anytime soon because you know the threat actors are, are generally very active um, in terms of these types of um, incidents. So I think what's really driving this, as you've seen from the pie charts we've been talking about, is less you know, accidents, less lost and stolen devices, uh, less paper data being lost, and really more and more of these cyber attacks, of these threats from outside parties. So um, when we're talking about um, you know, cyber threats, and our legal responsibilities with regard to these types of threats. What does this mean in terms of um, you know, the different areas of jurisdiction that we may be subject to? There are a lot of regulators in this space that are active, um, and it's important to recognize sort of where you fit amongst all of these different regulators. Obviously, we've been talking about the Department of Health and Human Services, the Office for Civil Rights, um, again, is the civil enforcement authority for the HIPAA rules. 
So if you're covered by HIPAA, you're reporting these types of breaches and being investigated by the Office for Civil Rights at HHS. Um, the Office of the Inspector General, though, importantly, has also been very involved with data privacy and security issues over the last several years, um, particularly with regard to auditing different types of entities, including entities that may um, be submitting claims to Medicare and Medicaid. And so they are very interested in data privacy and security issues in that office as well. The Federal Trade Commission, of course, the FTC, um, also has very robust jurisdiction in this area. They have um, had many, settle many settlements, many penalties for entities that um, don't adequately protect data when they've promised their consumers they will do so. And the Federal Trade Commission jurisdiction is very broad. It covers HIPAA-covered entities and business associates in many circumstances. Um, that jurisdiction runs to for-profit entities that are not in the business of insurance. So if you're a for-profit entity and you're not in the business of insurance, you are also subject to FTC jurisdiction. Um, and they're going to be very concerned about what your privacy policies say, the promises that you make to the consumers whose data you hold, and whether or not you're keeping those promises and keeping their data safe. Um, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, is also involved in that in this space, particularly with regard to um, TCPA, um, which is you know a law that really creates protections for robocalls and text messaging. So if you are text messaging um, consumers, patients, and others, uh, you need to be very aware of your responsibilities under those requirements and to the FCC. The Department of Justice has criminal jurisdiction over many of these issues. So obviously they're very involved in criminal prosecution, including under HIPAA. Just a reminder that HIPAA also has criminal provisions and the Department of Justice has been increasingly interested in prosecuting individuals under HIPAA as well. So something really to think about um, in terms of training your staff on those issues too. And then we have the state attorneys general and other state agencies. Um, again, the state attorneys general have been increasingly active and they've been very involved in enforcing data protections for the residents of their states. So when we're talking about state jurisdiction, we've talked about all of these different federal actors, but when we talk about state jurisdiction, it's really important to remember that the state law applies to you based on the residence data that you hold. So it's not based on where your business is located. It is based on the residence data that you hold. So if you're a business that uh, serves customers in five different states and you have data on customers, patients, beneficiaries, consumers of all types in those five different states, you are arguably subject to the data privacy and security requirements in those five different states. For many businesses, it's all 50 states because they have data on the residents of all 50 of those states. Um, all of the 50 states and territories have data breach requirements, uh, and they are becoming increasingly, increasingly active with regard to passing laws that have broad consumer protections. CCPA in California is an example. 
Virginia recently passed a consumer protection law that has broad data privacy and security protections. We expect Colorado to be doing so shortly. Um, so, you know, it's really important to remember that the state laws um, are important and can really increase your liability in this area, um, can really um, create additional uh, issues for you to look at, particularly if you have a cyber incident or cyber attack of some kind and you have to do breach notification. So something really important to remember, don't forget about your state regulator and make sure that you understand your responsibilities under state law to protect this data as well. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about what this looks like in a practical perspective. So, you know, we're talking about here federal regulators, FTC has been very active um, in this area as well as the state AGs. These are some examples of very high dollar settlement amounts in this area. Then we've got OCR settlements in that second bullet, you know, several million dollars for these different entities. And then just a reminder about international law. Um, you may also, on some level, be subject to international law. International law works the same way that state law does. That is, if you have data on residents of different countries, you may be subject to those laws. They usually have thresholds related to the amount of data that you have or the size of your business. So just because you have international residence data doesn't necessarily mean you are subject to that international law, but you could be. And uh, particularly European regulators under the General, data, General Protection Data Regulation, which is GDPR. Um, sorry, that's, that's, uh, that's misspelled on the slide. I just realized it's GDPR, General Data Protection Regula Regulations. Um, apologize for that. At any rate, you could be subject to the GDPR and that could create uh, additional um, liability for you. The European regulators have been very active in this space as you can see in that last bullet, um, just one record could result in a fine from those regulators. So again, very important to understand what you're looking at in terms of jurisdictional responsibilities at the state level, which residence data do you hold for which residence in which state, the international level. Similarly, do you have international residence data? Do you qualify for jurisdiction under those requirements? Um, and at the federal level, all of the different regulators we've talked about, HHS, DOJ, FTC, FCC, it's our alphabet soup of federal regulators. How does your business interact with those regulators as well? Okay, so moving on here, what I've put together on this slide is what I like to call a cyber attack response checklist. Now, I'm, an, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers don't generally like checklists because they leave a lot out. But I think this particular checklist is very helpful because it's sort of a cheat sheet to keep next to you to make sure that you've implemented these requirements um, in your policies and procedures so that you're prepared to respond to cyber attacks. And it may be helpful to have next to you if you're actually responding to a cyber attack. So you can remember all of the different issues that you need to address when one of these may come up. Now, we're knocking on wood and hoping this never happens to you, but arguably it's not if, it's when, um, because these attacks are so prevalent 
Um, again, not just in the healthcare sector, in all sectors, it's really important to have a plan. Please, please, please have a plan to deal with cyber attacks. Have a robust incident response plan that includes all of these factors related to how you're going to respond in a cyber attack situation. Please practice your plan. Make sure that the first time you're implementing this plan is not in real life. Um, you know, we do tabletop exercises with many of our different clients so that we all sit down and walk through a practice scenario so that everybody knows what their roles and responsibilities are when one of these very scary things happen so that you're not staying up all night worrying about what's going to happen when this happens. You know, you've practiced, you know where your plan is, you know what's going to happen, you know who's going to be responsible for what, and you can um, implement your plan in a very seamless way. It's so critical because the minutes count when you're dealing with a cyber attack. So as you'll see from the checklist, again, the first bullet is identify the appropriate points of contact. That is so important when you're dealing with a cyber attack. It may be um, one particular command individual that is in charge of everything, or it may be a team, a command team structure. You have a cyber incident response team. It may be one person in IT, one person in legal, one person in HR. Um, it may be, uh, you know, a different team organization, but really determine ahead of time who is going to be responsible, and then if and when the bad thing happens, make sure that they are able to take responsibility immediately, um, and make sure that you have backup. Um, you know, we had a client experience a security incident when their team leader, um, the head of information technology, was on vacation in the Bahamas. Um, and it took a while for them to figure out who was going to step into his shoes while he was on vacation. These things happen at all times of the day and night, and it's not just five days a week when you're not on vacation. So really important to understand your appropriate points of contact here. Um, then obviously your second step is what I like to call stop the bleeding, because of course I work in the healthcare industry. That is really identifying what is happening. What type of attack are you um, under, uh, undergoing? Um, how are you going to triage? How are you going to contain that attack? And how are you going to eradicate that attack? Um, what is happening in your organization? And how are you going to get back to normal? That's what we call that stop the bleeding step. It is so important, however, to remember that when you are stopping the bleeding, when you are uh, identifying, triaging, and containing your incident, you preserve evidence. Nobody should be wiping anything or deleting anything during that phase. You can certainly be what, what we call sandboxing. That is taking things off your network, isolating devices, isolating programs, isolating systems, Absolutely, you may absolutely need to do that, but please don't delete anything because we need that evidence to determine what happened and to determine what our legal responsibilities are. So you absolutely should be containing the incident, that is making sure that you're taking systems and devices offline as necessary to contain the incident and to stop the spread. Um, to stop the incident, but please do not delete any evidence because it's really important for forensic work 
to really have all of those pieces of evidence to determine what happened, what data was accessed, what data may have been acquired or taken from your enterprise. And we don't know that without the evidence. If we don't have the evidence, in the vast majority of cases, we have to presume that all of your data was affected. And that means notifying a lot of people. So it is really important that we have the evidence to prove exactly what happened, exactly what data was accessed, for what people, so that we can limit the scope of our legal notification responsibilities. And if we don't have the evidence, we can't do that. Um, you obviously want to engage fairly quickly with your cyber insurer. If you do not have cyber insurance, I highly suggest you consider it. Um, and you want to um, work with your cyber insurer in these incidents to ensure that you're engaging outside counsel and vendors that are approved by your cyber insurer. So you don't want to immediately jump to um, the recommendation of your IT uh, friend who uh, may have a brother who helps with forensics. That's not where you want to go. Um, that brother may be very good at his job, but he may not be covered by your insurance. And if you hire someone who jumps in um, immediately, um, they may not be covered by your insurance. You also do not want to engage vendors without um, ensuring privilege protections from a legal perspective. And there is a certain process that you want to engage there because of recent case law involving uh, security incident response and how privilege may apply. So it is very important that you work with legal counsel inside your organization, outside your organization, um, to really ensure that have, you have good legal privilege protections for the ongoing investigation, because many, many of these investigations end up in litigation. So there are very active plaintiff attorneys in this space who take breach notification letters and look to sue the entities that may have had a breach um, and that is becoming more and more of what this uh, legal response looks like, is dealing with litigation in addition to regulatory investigations. So you really do want to keep in mind that you have to um, take certain steps to protect the information that's part of these investigations for purposes of legal privilege. You want to um, determine the scope here with your outside counsel, your um, internal counsel, your vendors, figure out what happened based on the evidence as we talked about before, um, really understand what the scope of the incident is and, and what the attacker did while they were in your enterprise. You want to coordinate with information sharing organizations or information sharing and analysis organizations. And those are external organizations. Um, you may be members of those organizations. They provide resources. They share information, and again, you're not sharing patient data, you're not sharing employee data, you're sharing what are called those indicators of compromise. What type of attack did you experience? Um, how did the attacker get into your systems? Were they using certain internet protocol or IP addresses? Did they perpetrate a phishing attack? What did that look like? So that your peers in your industry or in other industries can uh, benefit from that sharing of knowledge. So everybody can understand, okay, that this is the type of attack that happens in this circumstance. And then this is what works to remediate it. What are the steps that you took that worked to contain it, that worked to eradicate it, 
that helped you get back online after that attack. You also want to figure out the best time to coordinate with law enforcement. It's really important to ensure that you're appropriately coordinating with law enforcement here, but it has to be really done at the right time because if you call law enforcement too early and you don't have enough information, it's not really going to be helpful to them and they want to be helpful to you. And so um, you need to make sure that you coordinate with your vendors, with your counsel to involve law enforcement at the right time so that you get them the information that they need so that they can help you, help you um, with the incident itself or uh, potentially get the bad guy that perpetrated the incident. And then once you've sort of gotten all of that in hand, you really need to take a good look at your notification responsibilities under state, federal, and potentially international law, as we've been talking about. You may need to engage a notification vendor. If you're talking about notifying 100 people, 1,000 people, 100,000 people, a million people, um, that's probably not something that you have the bandwidth to do within your own organization. So it's really important that you um, engage a good vendor that knows how to do this and can take the steps that are appropriate to verify addresses. You don't want to send notices to the wrong people um, to keep track of the notices that you sent, to keep track of your returned mail. Obviously, this becomes a very uh, large effort depending on the size of the incident that you've encountered. And then you want to prepare for regulatory uh, investigations. Obviously, a large part of what we do is help our clients interact with state, federal, and potentially international regulators. Um, and uh, all of those uh, agencies that we've been talking about may be interested in the incident that you had, and you may need to respond to their requests for information. Okay. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this slide, um, but again, this is a checklist of sorts to make sure that you have considered all of the technical and legal issues that we're dealing with in these types of threats, in these types of attacks. These are often issues that the regulators highlight because they're issues that businesses aren't paying enough attention to prior to one of these incidents. So, you really want to, um, again, take this list, talk to your internal IT folks, understand how you're implementing these requirements. These are all requirements under the law, but they are also industry best practices. So if you're not doing these things, you should be. Um, so let's just go quickly through this list. Uh, business associate agreements, if you're a HIPAA covered entity or if you're a business associate, do you have the appropriate downstream contracts? These are also known as vendor or supply chain contracts in other industries. So there is a corollary in other industries. In other words, you want to make sure that you have a good handle on what vendors have your data and what your contractual obligations look like there, particularly with regard to incident response and breaches. If a bad thing happens at one of your vendors, how is that going to be handled? What are their responsibilities to you? because you as the data owner are going to be uh, subject to the regulatory requirements, so you want to make sure you have a good handle on that before the bad thing happens. As we talked about earlier, really understanding what data you have for what people, um, what proprietary data you have, et cetera. Um, if you don't know, if you don't have a good inventory, you can't appropriately assess the risk, which is the next bullet. 
really understanding your risk to your data, and I'm not talking about an audit, I'm not talking about a gap analysis with regard to your legal requirements, I'm talking about understanding the risks to the data itself where it lives, and then managing those risks, which is the next bullet. Do you have all of the necessary controls to make sure you can manage that risk, including encryption? Have you implemented robust encryption for data at rest and in transit? Do you have good transmission security, which is the next bullet? Um, are you auditing? Are you catching all of the different issues that may be happening either with your workforce members, if we, as we talked about at the beginning of the presentation, or that's happening um, uh, with unauthorized parties accessing your data? The next bullet is patch management. Patch management is hard, but it's incredibly important because you need to make sure that you are appropriately addressing the vulnerabilities that your applications may have. Vulnerability and penetration testing are really important to understand to make sure that you don't have any open doors. Like I said, you don't have any open ports. You don't have default passwords on your Internet of Things devices where attackers can exploit those. Uh, do you have a security awareness program? Are you training your staff not to click on those phishing links? Are you doing phishing exercises? Um, are you prepared for insider threat as we talked about? And do you have disaster recovery business continuity plans and incident response plans? What do those teams look like? Again, who is tasked in circumstances with disasters, with business continuity issues, and with incident response to make sure that you can um, figure out what's going on and get back up and running as soon as possible. So some of the additional considerations here, um, we just wanna make sure that again, um, we're talking about um, all of these risk issues. Um, DOJ has some um, uh, you know, detailed checklists on evaluating compliance programs. HHS has a lot of very robust guidance on it website. So again, just highlighting the issues that we're dealing with on a regular basis that the federal regulators are very interested in making sure that you're leveraging the guidance that may be available from DOJ, from HHS. Um, there's a lot of guidance from the National Institutes of Standards and Technology that's missed. They have a lot of really great guidance on different security controls that you should be implementing. Um, lots of guidance out there on how to train your staff. Um, and so there are also entities like the American uh, Corporate Counsel Association, um, the Association of Corporate Counsel here, that um, you know, also provide um, uh, supplementary materials in terms of you know, security lingo. What, what does the, the language look like to talk about these different issues? Um, so look for those types of resources, too, from the organizations in which you may be involved. And, you know, really, finally, we just want to recommend here, you know, again, um, walking through the different issues that we've talked about in this presentation, going back to our data governance conversation. Do you have a handle on all of your data? Do you know where it is? Is it PII? Is it personally identifiable information for employees or consumers or students? Is it PHI, is it HIPAA, protected health information for patients or beneficiaries? Um, is it intellectual property data? Again, trade secrets, proprietary information. Is it other sensitive data? 
um, you know, really what is your data? Where, what kind of data do you hold as an organization? Where does it live in your um, enterprise? What systems hold it? What applications hold it? What devices hold it? Where is that data? Um, and really, really understanding that is so important because every regulator requires you to know that and they require you to know the risk to your data so you can implement the right controls to protect it. Um, as we talked about also, there are a lot of different uh, laws that may apply to your data. State laws, um, again, as we discussed, state laws apply depending on the resident's data that you hold. So again, not where your business is located, where the residents that you serve live. Um, again, that could be one state, that could be five states, that could be 50 states. Um, where do you hold data for residents? Uh, and what, uh, what state laws are you subject to? Similarly with international law, do you hold international residence data and are you subject to those international laws? And then of course the federal regulators that we talked about, is it FTC, is it FCC, is it HHS, is it DOJ? Again, alphabet soup of federal regulators, really understanding your legal obligations there so you can implement a good baseline of compliance controls um, and then build on that as you need to. HIPAA is a fantastic baseline to start from, but you may want to start with GDPR if you're an international organization, or if you, you may want to start with CCPA if you do a lot of business in California. So really understanding what your um, obligations look like and where you want to start is so important. Considering the potential risks, again, state law, federal law, international, civil and criminal actions, regulatory actions and investigations that may result in settlements or civil penalties or even jail time for your employees, all important risks. And then again, as we talked about, litigation has just been increasing over time, including both individual lawsuits, single plaintiff suits, but also class action suits. And then as we talked about too, you wanna to coordinate closely with your counsel, internal counsel and outside counsel to make sure that you understand your legal obligations because this is such a complicated area of the law and there are so many compliance responsibilities that it's always good to have support when you're dealing with all of these issues. And of course, if you have any questions at all, you can always get in touch with me offline um, and I know that, uh, you know, Catherine is available to you as well. So really um, great to be in touch over time if that's helpful to you. Um, and we're really um, glad to be a part of this conversation. Um, really hope this helps as you're determining your compliance responsibilities with regard to cyber threats and data privacy and security. Um, and we hope this helps you sleep better at night because you know you'll be prepared if and when you have an incident to respond to. Thank you so much, Ileana. This is a wonderful presentation and um, so much um, great information. Uh, we did have a few questions that came in, so um, I didn't know if we could go over a few of those. Yeah, of course. Okay, great. So um, we had a question about um, a baseline. Um, so what, what does good compliance look like as a baseline for companies regarding data privacy and cybersecurity? Right, good question. Again, as I mentioned, you know, I think it really depends on 
sort of the data the business holds, the laws that it's subject to, um, and really determining where it wants to start from that baseline. So again, that baseline could be federal law. Um, you could be a HIPAA-covered entity or a business associate and decide that, you know, implementing HIPAA practices is really what you want to do. You could be subject to international law and you decide that GDPR is the best baseline for you. Um, or you could decide that a, a particular state law is, is the right baseline to, to include requirements. But all of those baselines are very similar um, because they all require protections for data security, implementing the appropriate controls that we've been talking about during this presentation. They all require implementing privacy protections and individual rights, making sure that you have robust processes to afford individuals with rights to their data. And they all require a breach notification. So on some level, the baseline is going to require, obviously, robust security controls, robust privacy protections and rights to individuals, and then really robust response to breaches as well. Okay, great. Um, okay, uh, what about, um, I, I know uh, you went over some of this previously, but we had a specific question about um, biggest legal risks for companies in this area. Right, also a good question. So again, um, that's really kind of in two areas. You have regulatory risk. Um, again, as we've been talking about, the regulators in this space have been very involved lately um, in investigations and in settlements and civil money penalties. And those are state, federal, and international regulators. So you could, again, have a state AG or a group of state AGs that may be interested in, in um, investigating a particular security incident or breach because it affects the residents of all their states. And they may decide to enter into some kind of settlement agreement with um, uh, settlement amounts or penalties associated with it. Similarly, the same could be true for a federal regulator like HHS, again, very involved here, or FTC. And then the same with an international regulator. So all of these entities may investigate after a particular incident. Again, you know, you may have multiple investigations with multiple regulators going on at the same time. It's obviously a huge resource um, issue because you want to make sure you can respond to all of these regulator inquiries in a very timely way. Um, and you could end up in a situation where you might have to implement uh, a settlement agreement with one of those uh, regulatory authorities, state, federal, or international, or multiple. So, um, so again, that's a, that's a huge legal risk in this area. So really understanding your compliance requirements before a bad thing happens, such that if you know if you do have a security incident you can offer up to the regulator all of the evidence of the good things that you did before that incident. And, you know, even the most secure entities can get hit with one of these types of threats, because again, many of them are perpetrated by phishing attacks, and it just takes one mistake to um, end up in a situation where even a very secure entity could end up with, a, with an incident or a breach. So if you have all of that evidence of good compliance to offer a regulator, it is less likely that you would be subject to um, an ongoing investigation or some sort of settlement or penalty. And that's why good compliance here is so important. Um, the same goes for litigation. So 
Um, as I mentioned previously, there are a lot of litigators that are particularly interested in data privacy and security issues on the plaintiff side. So your business could be um, subject to uh, some type of lawsuit um, from individuals resulting from a data breach or a security incident. And again, you know, you want to be able to offer evidence of your compliance, that you did everything right, that there was no harm to individuals as, as a result of the incident. Um, and those are increasingly complicated risk areas as well. So again, kind of two areas of risk, um, a regulatory risk from state, federal, international regulators, and then litigation risk from, from individuals who may be affected by uh, a security incident or a breach. Okay. Um, how about individuals? Are, are um, individuals suing to protect their data privacy rights? Yes, absolutely. You know, as we were just talking about, um, this type of litigation takes a lot of different forms. And it could be just one person because, you know, um, individuals are very interested in this area of law and the protections that are afforded to them under this area of the law. So you could have one person file a complaint with your organization or file a complaint with HHS or the FTC or DOJ. All of those entities take complaints and do investigations as a result of consumer complaints. So, um, you know, you could end up in a situation where you're dealing with an investigation pursuant to a complaint by an individual. So again, you want to make sure that you have a good process for dealing with complaints in your organization such that you can hopefully interact with that individual before they go to a regulator and file a complaint with the regulator. You know, it's not exactly the same as, as a lawsuit, but could result in and just as much money to be spent by your organization if, if the regulator uh, takes interest in that complaint that's filed by that individual, or the individual could go um, to an attorney and work with the attorney as uh, one person to file a, a, a lawsuit under state law. Um, uh, these lawsuits are usually filed under state law protection, um, or they could join a class of individuals that may be filing a lawsuit against you because they feel like you have um, misused their data or not protected their data in a way that resulted in some harm to them. Those are all uh, potential outcomes from um, individual dissatisfaction with the data privacy and security protections you have in place on their data. Okay. Um... All right, I think we're going to take one more question. Uh, okay, so are government regulators uh, investigating cases related to data privacy and security? And I think obviously we know that they are, but maybe you could expand on um, perhaps this question. Sure, sure. As we've, we've talked about a little bit already during the presentation, yes, government regulators of all types are very interested in data privacy and security issues. And as I mentioned, you know, at any one point, you could be subject to investigations pursuant to state, federal, and international regulators. Um, so, you know, dealing with the government regulators is very, um, again, resource intensive. It's important that you have support to do that. Um, you know, a lot of times entities will say, oh, it's just one letter from a government regulator, maybe a state regulator or a federal regulator, we can handle it. And maybe you can, uh, maybe you do really have the internal um, team to handle those types of requests. 
But often what we see is those requests get more and more robust over time. The regulators start asking for more and more information. And at some point, uh, the business decides, you know, we really maybe should involve outside counsel. <clears throat> Sometimes it is more efficient to involve outside counsel as early as possible rather than um, waiting until those data requests get scarier and scarier, if you will. So, um, you know, it's, it's important to be transparent. It's important to be cooperative. You know, you really don't want to um, get into an adversarial position with a government regulator unless you absolutely have to. And sometimes it just has to happen because um, you don't agree with the position the regulator is taking. That really is last resort. You want to be cooperative and transparent as much as possible so you can get to a good resolution. And sometimes it takes support to do that from <clears throat> lawyers that may be outside your organization that have more experience dealing with government regulators at the state, federal, and international level. So just some things to remember, you know, as you're as you're going through those experiences and and you know trying to get to the best outcome. Okay, great. Um, I think that we need to probably. Um, wrap up but i wanted to thank you so much did you have any other words of advice that you wanted to leave with us or anything else that you might have you might have thought of thank you thanks for having me um no i think i would just say you know again it's it's really important from a compliance perspective i know it's a lot of information but it's so important from a compliance perspective to make sure that you have these conversations before a cyber attack um, or a security incident happens. So again, I would just say, you know, uh, compliance is so important in this area of, um, you know, threats to your enterprise. And so um, having a good handle on what your data security looks like and how you're going to respond to one of these incidents before it happens is just key to how um, you can um, move forward when one of them does happen. Okay, wonderful advice because it's it's almost like when instead of if it's going to happen, right? Absolutely, yes. Every every entity will experience um, uh, a cyber attack of some point, of some kind, at some point, and it may be hopefully a very minor one, um, but it could be a very uh, scary one, and so it's 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 just so important to be prepared for it. Right. Right. Well, I wanted to thank you again so much for being here, Ileana. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, thank you. And uh, attendees, please use the contact information in the in the slides. Um, you don't forget you can download those with a button on either it'll either be on the side of your screen or on the upper panel of your screen. Um, if you have any questions further, you can um, uh, send those questions to us and we'll forward them on to Ileana. Please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.